Welcome to Comet Talk, a production of the BK Happy Hour Laboratory, where we share our class of 1974 stories. Hello, I'm your host, Barry Williams. John Addison is a co-producer and fact checker, and Jim Reed is editor in general. Our guest for this episode of Comet Talk lives in the Tulsa area. Please welcome Philip Sevihar. Hey, Philip, how are you today? Good, thanks. So what's going on with you this uh, week? It's a brand new month. Uh, you've just uh, survived the holidays, I guess. What's what's happening? Yeah, I've been laboring through Labor Day. I'm back at work now. I work kind of for the as a contractor for the FAA, so that's what's kind of going on in my world. Well, that sounds that sounds fantastic. Well, to kind of get things loosened up, I've got some some questions for you, Phil. What's the best sandwich in the world? I kind of like the Philly cheesesteak. Ah, very good. Good. Named after me. <laughs> That's good. So I recipe. Yeah. Have you ever made a Philly cheesesteak? No, not really. Most of the time, just uh, buy it at Subway and stuff. Oh, there you go. There you go. Can't go so, wrong. That's you're absolutely right. So here's your next question: If you had to throw away something away at your house today, what would it be? I've been getting rid of old junk as as I accumulate it, but yeah, I, I probably need to get rid of more old books and and things like that that are just taking up space and they're no longer relevant. You know, you know, I think that every time you make a move, you get a chance to squeeze that squeeze that thing down. Uh, I, down. Yeah, I, I I know that for a fact. So here's another one for you. What's your favorite action movie? Should have asked me these earlier, so I'd be more prepared. But that's okay. That's uh, oh, we want to catch you by surprise. Well, we'll jump over that one. Hey, let me let me ask you this: Is exercise worth it? I um, go out and I have a bike ride, so I bike around the kind of a a six mile block area around the house. I really enjoy it. It's kind of nice to get out, and uh, at least I go fast enough that it's cool during the summertime. <laughs> Do you, do you have a special off-road bike, or is it a is it a uh, just one for for street use? Uh, it's kind of one of those uh, hybrid ten speeds, you know, with a thicker tire than than you know, the, so it doesn't blow out as easily. But yeah, yeah, that that's it. Just that, a regular street bike. That certainly that certainly wouldn't work well if there was a blowout. So one one last goofy question for you before we talk to you about Bishop Kelly. Uh, do you have a uh, favorite place you like to go to to get a hamburger? Not necessarily, no. Not nothing around Inola that works, huh? <laughs> it's not your uh, dining capital of the world, if you know what I mean. So, so if you were wanting to get a hamburger, you have to go into Tulsa area to get it. Yeah. Oh my so goodness. So it's not like ten miles into Tulsa and stuff, and so. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. I hate I can... McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask you this question, and that was, um, you know, we go to a we go to a hamburger place where they they name the hamburger after famous people that are kind of local in the area. So, if there was a Phil Sebuhar hamburger, what would it be like? What would be in it? Uh, I'd probably have bacon in it, you know, and uh, cheese and and uh, kind of a blue cheese dressing stuff to kind of pick it up for the but that that's about it I guess any special any special blend of meat 
Uh, no, not not any buffalo burger or anything like that. Well, thank you for letting more than unusual. <laughs> yes, yes, you don't run across a blue cheese hamburger very often, but if you do, you know what you call it? You call it the Phil Sebihar. The Philly. The, <laughs> the Philly hamburger. There you go. Well, uh, Phil, thanks for playing along with us on that as we were, were leading into our our first set of questions. Really, it's about uh, it's about Bishop Kelly and about your years there. I'm sure you're probably wondering, what am I going to talk about from Bishop Kelly? And I bet you have some good stories or, or some, some good times that you'd like to share. No, I just kind of enjoyed the experience. There were a lot of good people there. And I think they uh, got you involved in being there. The teachers, I think, were pretty good, too. So that was a you know, plus side. Brother Burning w wouldn't pinch me too hard, but that, that was a, more of a challenging class. What was your favorite class at Kelly? I think uh, the history class with uh, Brother Thomas. I, I, is it? Well, there were several. So you had Brother Michael that also was called Brother, brother Michael, yeah, or Brother, brother John. John. Just you know, depending brother on John, whatever yeah. year you're you're ta thinking of. And I think there was another, and there was another brother that taught as well. So was that the world history class? Is that the one you're thinking of? Yeah, I think it's brother Michael Witt, or is that? That's correct. Yes, yes, he taught Western civilization. Yeah, he a kind of a history class that I think he really did a lot of effort in getting it prepared, which you know you don't always see. <laughs> Very true. Is there an activity that you really enjoyed at Kelly? I uh, worked on photography for the uh, yearbook and stuff, and I had a lot of fun there. It was the chemicals. We loved to sniff them. Oh, so it was the process. That's right. That's the old days when it wasn't digital. You had to process the film. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, you had to do film processing, and a lot of times uh, things just wouldn't go right, you know, and you were trying to push the film. In other words, you'd be ready for 400, but you'd try to increase the speed because you set it up to take pictures at uh, low resolution at football games, things like that. So, mm. yeah. so did, you, did you, as you were speaking about classes, uh, did you also have a, a favorite teacher like uh, Brother Bernadine because he liked to pinch you or did you have other favorite teachers? No, I didn't have really a lot of favorite teachers, I guess. I don't know. I just enjoyed quite a few. They each had different perspectives that you got. Like, uh, you know, Brother Bernie was kind of strict. But, you know, kind of come to find out that all the sups that we did just didn't mount a hill of beans, <laughs> to put it in the Bernie's vernacular, <laughs> or Brother Bernadine's vernacular. So what classes did you take with Brother Bernadine? Uh, we had that advanced class, and it was advanced algebra and stuff. And, and so we really didn't have a book. We had just his subs and stuff. You know, basically, they were kind of efforts in reducing the equations down to a couple terms, you know, like x plus 1. So we had a huge uh, multiple divisors and things like that, that ended up re reducing down to just something really simple. 
But do you do you think that practice helped you later when you you took higher level mathematics in in college? No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, probably mathematicians are probably the worst people to teach math. You know, I ended up getting an engineering degree. Engineering is more of just the practical solution of a a problem, and so those engineers tended to be more on just getting results, you know, they didn't care that this was a, a neat abstraction or something like that, you know, it was more important to, to get the results. Was there any other classes you think that gave you a good, a good solid foundation for later moving into engineering once you were in college? Well, a lot of chemistry classes, things like that. Uh, chemistry and some of the physics classes. But, uh, but one of the sisters, you remember who taught that? I, I've forgotten the, her name. Well, actually, I think the, I had Mrs. Plackey. Uh, I had it for chemistry. Miss Plackey, Miss Plackey, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, she she was chemi chemistry one and two, I believe, is she taught that. I think there were two two layers of chemistry. I got in early. And I think they just had one layer. One layer. <laughs> you know, they didn't have advanced course and stuff. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm thinking of, of college level where there's multiple layers of chemistry. There may have been only one uh, chemistry class. I remember I had, uh, had her, though, as the teacher for that class. I liked it. I liked it. It was one of my, one of my faves. Other, was that chemistry class also one of your favorites? I mean, that, that led you to go for a chemical engineering degree? Yeah, I, I liked it. I think uh, I would have appreciated more organic chemistry stuff, but that may have been kind of a advanced for uh, high school and stuff, and maybe that's why they didn't push it so much. But typically, organic chemistry you'll see a lot more around than than really inorganic chemistry or certain reactions and stuff. So. What what point did you decide when you were at Kelly, you know, to pursue an engineering degree, and how did you happen to pick where you decided to go for that degree? What happened was I went to Grinnell College, and it they were it was a liberal arts school, and so uh, I got a um, bachelor's of chemistry, and then when I got out, you couldn't do anything with it. <laughs> You know, you never got hired for what you got trained to do. So eventually I went back and got a master's in chemical engineering. The reason I went to South Dakota School of Mines and Technology. And what the deal was, was my younger brother went to the Air Force Academy and he got stationed at Ellsworth in Rapid City, South Dakota. And so I could schmooze off my brother terms of living expenses. So I ended up getting out of uh, grad school without much debt, which is, you know, it's a miracle these days. Yeah, that was it. And it was, you know, chemical engineering, but in retrospect, that didn't help much or anything because it was hot for only a year and then it died. <laughs> what I found was useful was that I learned how to program and so that was what I used a program I developed in, uh, for my master's thesis. And then I used that to get into uh, general programming.
Did you happen to work when you were in, in, in high school? Yeah. Where, where did yes, you work? Did. Where did you work? Just restaurants. Uh, it's still there, but it's kind of changed its name. It used to be the Sirloin Stockade, but then it changed to the Sputter. So it's over on uh, about 51st, maybe 50th and, and Sheridan. You know where that is? Yeah, sure, from? sure. So, so what, what did you do uh, at uh, the Sirloin Stockade? Uh, everything. <laughs> what up, I ended up getting to be a kind of a cook and stuff, you know, but I did bust a lot of tables and things like that. So nobody uh, gets to be chief of Exxon <laughs> right out of high school. Well, how, how, how did you happen to find that particular job? And, and, and what years did you work there? Was it just a summer job or did, uh, and, and did you just see a sign in the windows that help wanted or how did you happen to come into that? I don't know how I found that, but uh, basically uh, it was available in kind of like uh, junior year and senior year in, in high school. So it's pretty much like uh, today you might find a help wanted ad and stuff and just end up going there. So mm -hmm. that's, that. I think probably my parents decided that it'd be good for me to pull my own weight, you know, <laughs> time so to. Did you become accomplished at uh, cooking steaks at uh, the Sirloin Stockade? Yeah, I ended up being okay at it, you know, nobody's perfect. And my recollection was that they had real inexpensive steak dinners. So, for example, a steak dinner was only a dollar sixty-nine for a top sirloin and stuff, which is unheard of today. When you have the same top sirloin for about ten dollars at the store. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Plus, you have the salad bar, right? <laughs> plus a salad bar, yeah. And so, probably an ice cream machine to get get yourself served ice cream. I mean, yeah, self serve, yeah. So uh, you, you could really uh, go to town back in the old days, but I, I think uh, that's all disappeared now, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Can't you're think of anything. You were probably working for a dollar an hour, too. About that, I think. I, I can't recall my original wage, but that was uh, that after a, a two-week paycheck might have been like $50 or something. <laughs> all those years, I, I do remember them well. Well, well, Phil, thank you for sharing your your memories of uh, your time at Kelly. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to come back in a little bit and talk a little bit about your your college career and your uh, and, and where you went to school and that lovely part of Iowa. So we'll be back in just a moment. Hey everybody, welcome back to Combat Talk. This is Barry Williams, and I have the, the luxury of hosting today and speaking with Philip Sebihar. And Philip, you've been uh, so gracious to share with us your uh, life at Kelly and the things you enjoy doing, including some of the things you, the jobs that you did as you were working your way through Kelly. And then you mentioned briefly a, a little bit about your uh, jumping out and uh, getting a degree in chemistry. So let's let's back up there. Uh, so now, where did you go to college? I went to Grinnell College. And, and where is Grinnell? It's in Iowa, in the central Iowa. 
my dad was from Iowa. And so he was back visiting his mother and who was still in Iowa. And we were driving along on the way there. And he realized that I, uh, Grinnell was a, a good school and was in the area. So we stopped and interviewed and that's how I ended up there. Was that uh, the, on the top of your list or did you have others that you were interested in or was that kind of just the one? What's nice about small liberal arts colleges is that they they have a, a high student to or high teacher to PhD to student level, you know? So they have like, even now, I think eight to nine students to each PhD that they have teaching. Now, not all teachers teach all the time and stuff, but that's the going average and stuff. And so that was good. I think initially they were not, were about like every other college and that they were kind of underfunded and stuff, but they did have a group of people that were interested in improving the finances of the college. And so... Uh, because of that, they now have like a, a $2 billion endowment. And this is compared to Harvard, which has a lot more schools, you know, in terms of PhD programs, things like that, where this school is just a liberal arts college. And they only have about $40 billion. As colleges go, they're, they're doing fairly well. And I think they got ahead of the curve in, in realizing that they needed to um, get better financial footing and stuff so they can afford to teach students. And even now, the college is looking at helping out the students in terms of, you know, scholarship and so on to, to get them through college. Now, is this a, is this a state college or was it a, a privately funded college? It's a private school. It's a private school. What was the student population when you were there? It was about 1,100 students. So it was a small liberal arts college. And today, do you think it's about the same size? Uh, it's expanded. It's it's grown to 1,400 students. Are, are they known for anything particular in terms of uh, their academics, uh, certain departments, or, or just maybe some of the alumni are particularly well-known? They're probably the best school in Iowa, which is like being the best school in, well, podunk you. <laughs> I think I think they're definitely one of the better finance schools and stuff, which is, I think, what you need to have. So a lot of the colleges that uh, really didn't focus on the finance didn't uh, do so well. So, for example, one of the guys that came out of the college was Robert Noyce, who is with Intel, founded Intel. And so they have a lot of funding from Intel, things like that. Yeah, that, that's, that's, pretty, that's a pretty important. Uh, Intel pushed the edge of technology, and if they're a supporter of, of the university, that would be a, be a heck of a deal. It's just a college. 
not a university. Just a college. Excuse me. <laughs> Apologize. Just kidding. But yeah, and that makes a big difference. And, you know, it's a real small cause, but they get their share of notoriety, you know, and I think they shut down during the pandemic and showed up on national news as one of the colleges that were shut down, you know, <laughs> but yeah. So uh, having some some uh, experience of uh, having a child going to school in Iowa, a couple things you learn is there's a lot of corn and a lot of lot of uh, uh, poultry. No, excuse me, pigs and chickens, some chickens, but mainly mainly pigs. And I have been up in, in Iowa during in the winter, and it's 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 sharp. <laughs> it's kind of chilly. It's cool. Was that uh, was that a um, a big surprise to you? Your first winter in central Iowa. No, it was, it was, like you said, it was, the weather was cold, you know, after like October, it got really chilly and didn't thaw out until pretty close to end of February. So there weren't many people saying, is this heaven? And other people responding, no, this is Iowa. <laughs> no, they didn't do the field of dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm sure there were quite a few fields uh, they, they weren't, there are they were, a lot of fields of corn and stuff, and people would come out to play baseball in the nearby area. But so did, you mentioned earlier in in our discussions that you decided that you liked the northern climb so much that you you went to the South Dakota School of Mines. Is that correct? Is that the the correct term? Yeah, that's the correct term. Now that's getting further north. How did you? Ha well, you mentioned that your brother had gone through the Air Force Academy. And was and was stationed at a Air Force base that was very near where South Dakota School of Mines is located. He was stationed at Ellsworth Air Force Base, which is in near Rapid City, South Dakota. It worked out well that I could uh, get an advanced degree in chemical engineering, and so I had to take some of the undergraduate engineering courses with uh, the graduate program. I see. So uh, I have some friends that uh, were in the Air Force as well in Ellsworth, and they were in the Strategic Air Command. Was that your brother was, was part of that? Yeah. yeah. Very, yeah, very yeah. interesting. He he uh, was a co-pilot flying B-52s. He was a, a bigger kid, you know, playing a, as a tackle and stuff. So he wasn't going to shoehorn into a F-16 or something, so... Or one of those B-1 bombers or anything like that that uh, the SAC later later adopted as one of their aircraft. Um, yeah, they uh, didn't have it when he was there. His uh, class graduated, and they came out with the uh, A-10, a tank killer. And so that was the aircraft from his class and stuff. And uh, But he... Uh, a lot of the fighter pilots had to be a little more s smaller and agile to get inside the cockpits. But he flew T-38s and stuff. What was really good uh, was they had an ACE program. They could fly anywhere they wanted to with a, you know, T-38, you know. They'd get out of Rapid City and go to Florida and stuff like that. <laughs> So do you think uh, that did that have any bearing on your movement into the, the defense market space as far as working in engineering and programming? Not really. 
when I finished my degree, when I went in as a chemical engineer, it was a hot market. When I got out, it was a dead market. <laughs> but why was that? Uh, it just peaked and dropped off, you know. Was it and associated with the oil industry or? Yeah, oh, that's okay. typically what happened. And so uh, at that, you know, the price of oil kind of went up. And so they were looking to try to, they thought they needed a lot of uh, engineers to produce it. And they did at the time, but then the market just kind of, the price of oil fell and they didn't need as many engineers and stuff like that. So I think they took advantage of the situation where it's refining is where the bottleneck is. So they could have a lot of production, but you can't refine it to make gasoline or a product and you're kind of limited there. And that's kind of what's happening today, I think. That's true. I, I understand that the, the last ref, refinery to open brand new was probably the mid 70s, mid, mid to late 70s. Uh, uh, all the other refineries have been there in place and have been renovated on ongoing maintenance. But as far as brand new production capacity, uh, there's only been maybe one or two uh, since the 70s. Yeah, it's, I don't. I think they're actually closing them down because. Yeah. If they're not a super refinery, a small refinery is not very competitive and stuff. So like the um, Tulsa refinery, Tulsa has a refinery, but it's it's more specialized and, and does lube oils. So, so uh, how did you get in, into programming? How did you make that shift in your career? You found out the market wasn't really ripe for people with a master's in chemical engineering. How, how did you make that move? Was it while you were in college that you made that transition into programming or did it happen on the job training, so to speak, after the fact? It kind of happened after the fact. What happened was uh, I kind of hooked up with a company that was uh, developing a device that would measure the fluid level in the oil well. And they would do it by sending down an acoustic pulse or a, a gas pulse, and that would actually go down the, the uh, production tubing and reflect back. And by uh, uh, typically they've had the tubing is connected by fixed length of, of tubing that are like 32 foot length. And so they're within a couple inches of that length that actually generates a reflection back that you can count the number of callers and determine the, the speed of sound in that oil well. And eventually you'll hit a big reflection that comes from the fluid level reflecting back. So it's like blowing on a Coke bottle that you get a natural frequency and the higher the fluid level, the higher the frequency, that kind of thing. So. Uh, was that the first of its kind to, to to exist? This concept was around for a long time. They actually figured this out by what's called an echo meter, and they would shoot a gunshot into the a blank into the oil well, and then they would have a microphone that would listen to the pressure pulses coming back, 
and they could determine that. So the concept's been around, but it was always manual. And they ended up using calipers to measure the distance between like a row of 10 collars. So they had 10 fingers that they could kind of spread out and collapse. And that would, they could measure the reflections and then determine where the fluid level was. And what we did was we automated that. It was the first kind of patent to automate that application. So. Uh, well, that sounds like it's right, right, was at the time right on the, the cusp, on the bleeding edge, so to speak, of, of technology. And so that was your foundation for programming and, and automation? And right, yeah. So basically, they would control a well by this acoustic pulse and turn it off and on so that it would uh, pump to its lowest level, shut off, and turn back on at a certain height. And, and that way, it kind of optimized the production from the well. But otherwise, you know, they didn't do that. There's a chance that when you could get fluid levels that are too high, just controlling off of a time clock wouldn't really uh, optimize the production from the well. And if the fluid level is too high, that hydrostatic head will force well or the uh, water fluid levels would force the oil to stay in the formation, <laughs> be too high. So they have to pump it off, but you don't want it to pump down to where it's completely off and sit there and pound the production tubing. Because what happens is uh, if the chamber of the pump is halfway filled, it would hammer, what is it called, hydraulic hammer. And basically the the um, tubing would all drop down until it hit the water and then it would, would smash on it, you know? So it, you know, there's a fine line between keeping a little bit of head on the reservoir and having it low enough so that um, fluid would continue to come into the formation. So uh, Phil, how did you make the, the transition uh, into the defense industry uh, market space? The problem was that uh, the device we had ended up being more expensive than what oil field people wanted to produce. So they weren't interested in buying the, the product, you know, if it's too expensive. So if it costs $10,000 and, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't pay for itself. And so we had a really kind of soft market and I got into um, working at Fort Sill down in Lawton, Oklahoma. And what we, what I was working on was a kind of a artillery locating a radar system. And so let me explain a little bit. So what you do is you scan across the horizon and you look for when artillery shells get shot up. And so this artillery locating system can detect where the round came from and where it's going. And the, the time it takes to, once you detect it across above the horizon to where it lands, it may be a minute or two minutes, you know, for a artillery round. And that may be enough time to warn somebody of, of problems. But 
for example, Russia doesn't have this type of technology. And as a consequence, they'll go ahead and shoot artillery rounds haphazardly, and it may land where they think it should or may not, you know, which is not so great. But once they do shoot it, I think the Ukrainians have this device, the Firefinder radar system, and they're able to detect who shot it and then return fire before the round even hits the ground. Payback's a bitch. Yeah. Yes, I understand that's that, that whole counter battery fire uh, process was even expanded to tracking sniper uh, rounds as well, uh, specifically during Afghanistan and Iran uh, oh. wars. Same, same concept uh, for tracking snipers. Um, and I was involved in, in some aspect of that, um, not in terms of programming, just equip from the equipment standpoint and uh, making modifications to vehicles to handle the antennas and the, the things they needed to have to, they were, they were built on the back of Humvees. So same, same, con same concept. So um, I also understand that you got involved in, in aviation as well. Yeah, my dad was a World War II pilot and so one of the concepts he got involved in was uh, fixing up planes and selling them. In order to check out these planes, we'd end up flying them and stuff. <laughs> I ended up getting a license and, and, and so on for flying them. And uh, that kind of served me well. My current job with the FAA is they wanted somebody that was a pilot and was familiar with the software and all the airport equipment that they had have involved. So it's useful to have a pilot to know about PAPI lights and different types of light, runway lighting, that kind of thing. So that's that's kind of what I'm working with now. I understand you were involved in developing some software that was used for helicopters. Is that correct? Yeah. What I ended up happening was... Uh, uh, after I uh, was working out at Fort Sill, I ended up getting an opportunity to work on with the Comanche program, the light helicopter. It's a nice helicopter, but they only built two of them because <laughs> uh, it was kind of a development program. And, and what the concern was that they didn't have enough tanks to match the Russians uh, in a invasion of uh, the European theater. But to equalize it, they would get a helicopter that could uh, really uh, balance the number of tanks and stuff. In, in other words, they, a helicopter could kill tons and tons of, of um, tanks. You know, they'd first shoot the lead uh, a tank, and that would hold up the, the tanks that were following it. And then they'd shoot the last tank, and then that would hold both all the tanks that they had in a uh, a um, kind of a place where they could uh, erase the rest of them, you know. So I think we see that playing out in Ukraine, but uh, with not only the use of attack helicopters, but also attack drones, uh, and with with a, a road being the only place you can navigate, if they went to the fields, they sunk up to the hubs because <laughs> the tanks yeah. are so heavy. Uh, a sim similar kind of tactic. Although the, the Comanche never did uh, reach production. Uh, I know it's uh, 
it was probably made you feel very good to work on a defense program that I assume that that some of the the things that concepts you guys came up with got moved on to the aircraft that were that became production uh, that that became part of the U.S. arsenal for 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 use probably in Desert Storm and some of the other things. Yeah, what happened was. Uh... The processor we were using was a 1750 processor, which was 16 bits. So it's a real, it's barely more powerful than a Z80 processor. It just, it was adequate for what we were doing. But, you know, these days everybody's using a 32-bit processor. And basically they able to take the same software and just port it to uh, bigger processors and, and away you go. So... It wasn't wasted, but definitely in the old days, the processors were small and inefficient and things like that. So it was a development cycle to get through and get something that was useful. So, so, so how long have you been with the FAA? About a year and a half, two years maybe. Two, okay. A year and a half. What happened was uh, I um, was working with Honeywell out of Albuquerque. And they did military programs there. And I was there for about 20 years. What happened was they actually shut down uh, Albuquerque because the military development was really uh, cut down quite a bit. I left uh, Albuquerque in 2012 and came home to kind of take care of my mom. (laughs) But I got a job with Innovation Controls, which is a... a company in Tulsa, and they they pretty much um, did control equipment for diesel engines and uh, boats and um, other you know generators and things like that. So that was a kind of a nice transition to more commercial products. But they've had their ups and downs, and and uh, uh, what did they say? Last in, first out. <laughs> ended up, um, ended up going to work for Flight Safety and working with them for a while, and then the pandemic hit and they just shut down all kinds of uh, training for uh, avionics and stuff. And so that first in, last in, first out type applied again. So, but now I'm kind of working with the. Uh, FAA and and on their aviation program to work on these uh, lead-in lights. They only have one set of lead-in lights, and it's at uh, Long Island at LaGuardia Airport. And there's only one side, you know, so it was the south side versus the north side doesn't have any of these lead-in lights. But the idea behind the lead-in lights was they they, uh, bring traffic in and and, up. orient them to the runways for landing in kind of foggy conditions. And I think that's probably a good thing in, in that part of the country because it's uh, the, the weather often. I mean, I've taken off and landed at LaGuardia several times and it's like you're either getting ready to land on the water or taking off, <laughs> take off over the water. Uh, yeah, you're very tight visibility and uh, the runway is about as wide as the island is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. So, Well, well, Philip, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in just a little bit to talk about the future. So hang on, everybody. Thank you for listening.
Welcome back to Comet Talk. This is Barry Waves with Philip Sebuhar, and we've been talking about his uh, career uh, in engineering and manufacturing. And so uh, at this segment, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the future. So, Phil, uh, you now live in Inola. Uh, what kinds of things do you have lined up for the future? What happened was um, uh, I had a lot of stuff, so I came back to take care of my mom. And she wouldn't let me move my stuff into the house. <laughs> so I ended up, it was cheaper to buy a house than it was to store stuff. And that's why I ended up out here. And uh, it was kind of a decent choice. But my sister kicked me out after my, my mother passed away. And so I, I'm now uh, moved out here. So anyway, that's that's the story of why I'm out here. But it, I really like it. I think it's a, a really good deal. So anyway, uh, but in terms of future, where do I think I'll, I'll go? I, I'm thinking of uh, working on publishing some books with the different, the different programs and stuff like that and, and putting it in there, it into publishing. So for example, the, the fluid finder, that we develop for oil wells. I'm looking at developing a program that would be useful for that. It's kind of um, worthwhile now that there's uh, got real computers and it doesn't take forever to <laughs> develop stuff. And then the other thing too would be to maybe look at these different applications like uh, artillery locating, you know, convert that over to a program, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of useful applications that aren't just uh, the run-of-the-mill calculations that you normally do, but it's kind of uh, converting uh, applications that I've worked on into result uh, embedded systems that, that could be used. Phil, it sounds exciting to, to become an author of a book or books, but how many of them do you think that uh, you'll produce? Uh, I probably only have one book in me. <laughs> I kind of think it's worthwhile to um, make it understandable. A lot of the books I'm basing my work off of were developed in the 80s, and they were terse as could be, you know? I equals zero. <laughs> You know, and instead of saying, you know, index or explaining what they're really trying to do, you know, so a lot of times these, uh, it just makes the programming harder to work if you don't um, build in comments into the uh, actual code that you're using and build in smaller modules and get it so that it more supportable, you know, and easier to understand. So for example, um, stuff I'm working on now, there are over 300 lines of code, you know, in a single procedure, which is really difficult to understand. And then on top of that, they pick names that are only like six characters long, you know, <laughs> and not even intelligible, you know, so. It seems to me that just the limitations of what they're doing is has made the their program 
hostile to the user or difficult to use. So the, the push, I think, is to kind of come up with uh, re-looking at these programs to make them more user-friendly and more palatable for the development stuff. You know, there's no reason somebody couldn't read through it like they're reading it. It makes more sense to them. They, they can see that what they're doing in the algorithm and this section of code does this particular aspect of it. And then there's another section that takes on another aspect. And then you put the, combine several of these modules together and you've got a solution to a problem. Yeah, we, we used to call it the, uh, the programmer job self-protection plan when they would, instead of having modules, they would put it in you know, 300 lines of code that would add all types of routes out and in. It you know, drive you absolutely bonkers trying to track it all down. So to no, figure but, out how it works or why it broke. <laughs> at least you, when you modulize it, you can isolate it to a particular module. Yeah, uh, and they, they have names that you can't track, you know, and you keep looking at it going, what is LSTQT? <laughs> or what, are, you know. Yeah, you have to have a translator. In order just to figure out what's what's happening, uh, do you have a time horizon uh, on that? Not not specifically, but I think we're working on it. A lot of times, uh, I think initially what I'm trying to do is um, go through the tools that kind of are available and update them so that they're relevant and more useful. Because a lot of times uh, these computer programs they they have a lot of uh, development issues where they talk about, you know, whether, I don't know, they try to calculate the errors and things like that, the limitations and stuff like that, when they really should be just uh, uh, focusing on, does the program do what it needs to do? And uh, more, you know, about where the shortfalls are and be sure that you've, you've covered them that kind of thing. Any other plans that you, you'd have, uh, like if once you decide to hang it up and, and no longer be a contractor or, or be, be working at a regular eight to five, is there any, any uh, things special that you'd like to do? I'm a private pilot, so I'd kind of like to get back into flying and stuff. Well, that, that's, a, that's a lot of fun. I, I'm, are you currently rated now or do you do you did you keep up your rating or did you let it let it slide as you were doing other things i let it slide as the cost got higher <laughs> <laughs> understood understood uh when when i had my own plane it was worthwhile to go out and fly it as often as you could to, to develop time and and uh that kind of thing but uh, when you have to pay for, you know, a couple hundred dollars an hour for flying, it becomes a luxury that you'd rather have biscuits on the table. <laughs> Under, understood. Well, thinking, thinking of the future, you know, uh, we've got a chance to uh, see you at the last mini reunion uh, this last summer. And uh, we've got our big 50 coming up in a couple years. And, and, um, and we probably got another mini mini reunions or two in between. What do what do reunions mean to you? Uh, it's kind of nice to get together with people from uh, 
you know, I only see them once every two, three years, that kind of thing. So it's kind of worthwhile to figure out what they're doing or whether they're retired and stuff like that. Um, I think we had a big reunion and uh, it was at a, a dinner at some place, <laughs> DeMonte's or something. I don't think you were there, were you? The last. No, no, I, I didn't. I didn't attend. Yeah, but I, the the attendance was really good, but uh, because you know you're grouped at only particular tables, and those are the people you ended up talking to, and then afterwards uh, it kind of you know broke down, and you could spend a little more time, but that that wasn't too bad, you know. So, uh, in the last uh, mini reunion that we've uh, attended together, what was your your biggest surprise? Uh, any anything that uh, you walked away and going, well, I didn't know that. Uh, anything in particular that that stands out for you? Oh, you know, I talked to Will Gentry. He was at the last one, and I, you know, I didn't know what he was up to, and things like that. But he's just kind of getting in touch with people uh, was kind of worthwhile. You know, you have your regulars. I think, I'm sure Kathy Moore was there, but I think also maybe, uh, no, I don't think uh, Kathy Dysart was there or not. I don't know. The, this last reunion, yeah, both both uh, the mini reunion, both yeah. Kathy, Kathy and uh, Kathleen okay. and Kathy were, were, were there. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. You know, no problem. Um, well, uh, uh, Phil, you've you've been so helpful today in in talking about um, uh, your history at Kelly and in your career and a lot of the interesting technological things that you've developed. Is there anything you'd like to to, to close with before we we call this the end of the day? No, I don't have anything to add or take away or stuff. It's just kind of nice to find out what people are doing. I think. Uh, if it wasn't for this, you probably wouldn't know this or that about me. So <laughs> it's kind of, I think, worthwhile. John might disagree. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. Yes, he's uh, speaking of John Addison, Addison, our fact checker and co-producer, who's the silent shotgun sitting out here watching the keeping me on the straight and narrow. He's, so going, thank, he's lying. <laughs> thank you, John. Uh, well, Phil, thank you again for your time today. And thank you, John. Sure. And also thank you, Jim Reed, who will be editing this uh, podcast. And um, we look forward to providing many more podcasts. We have, we have several of them that are in production right now. And so be looking forward to, to look forward to seeing those uh, come up on your um, podcast platforms. So this is uh, Barry Williams, John Addison, Phil Sebihar, and our Editor General, Jim Reed, saying so long for now. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.